Hi, it's James. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad you could be here. This is an exciting week. We are going to cover Chapter 9, Nick Needham's book, The um, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. Uh, this week, we're covering three big, I mean, big-time figures in church history, and that being Jerome, uh, John Chrysostom, or I never can pronounce his last name right, and of course, St. Augustine of Hippo, who is probably one of the, I mean, literally other than Jesus and Paul, in the first thousand years of the church, nobody was more important than St. Augustine of Hippo. And what it, it also shows is how important North Africa, Northwest Africa was to the church, the early church. Um, I mean, once Rome fell, um, Constantinople um, was the main headquarters for what became the Byzantine Empire. And so, what I... I'm having technical problems with my other phone here. I don't know what the heck is going on, but um, I don't. I don't know. That's just. I'm just looking on my my spare phone and. And for some reason, it's not pulling up last week's um, so I don't know what what the deal is with that. I think what I'll do is I'll just restart it while I'm doing this podcast, and hopefully that'll fix the problem. But let's get on to our I mean, Nick Needham refers to the fourth and fifth centuries as the golden age of the early church fathers. Of course, the first one, John Chrysostom. He was born 349. He lived until 407 AD. His dad died when he was a baby, and his mother never remarried. Now, as a young man, he pursued a career in law. Um, Libanius, who was a prominent pagan of the time and teacher of rhetoric, referred to John as his best student. Uh, later, he became a devotee of Miletus, the confessor, spiritual leader of the Orthodox Christian community in Antioch, and he laid, later studied under the great Bible interpreter, I think it's Diodore, D-I-O-D-O-R-E, of Tarsus, who died around 394. Um, the problem that they were dealing with in the 4th century is that you had those who wanted to use an allegorical interpretation and those who wanted to use a, uh, a literal interpretation, you know, looking at the obvious historical meaning, a lot of the allegorical um, school of thought really started with origin. So... Um, it's also sometimes referred to as the symbolic meaning, 
uh, or the Alexandrian method. Um, now, Dio, it's D-I-O-D-O-R-E. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, but this gentleman emphasized the straightforward historical meaning of the text. And the interesting thing is that Here's what Needham said about uh, Chrysostom. In 386, Flavian gave full recognition to his deacon's growing stature in the church by ordaining John as a presbyter. That meant that John now had access to the pulpit, so he began his great career as a preacher for which he is best remembered today. I mean, he was one of the best speakers in the early Christian church. Um, and this is the thing I love about him. On page 233, Needham says this. He preached his way verse by verse through books of the Bible and was astonishingly direct and outspoken in denouncing sin among believers, especially the sin of compromising with worldly standards of behavior. So the whole idea of, of doing, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter at a church, this goes all the way back to the early church. And the fact that more churches aren't doing it is a shame. Um, he wrote a classic called On the Priesthood, The Nature and Duties of a Christian Pastor. He also wrote the golden book up on, on bringing up children. This was the first Christian book on the education of the young. I mean, there are a whole... Um, degree programs at some seminaries on um, Christian education. Um, so he later moved uh, from Antioch to Constantinople. He helped to form hospitals. He helped to care for the poor and the home, home, homeless. Uh, Olympias was from a wealthy aristocratic family. Her husband died after only two years of marriage. Uh, she took care of many of John Chrysostom's needs, but apparently they were only friends. There was no uh, secret relationship. They never married. But a lot of the funding that John Chrysostom needed for hospitals and caring for homeless and doing other things... Uh, came from her. Now, Emperor Arcadius and his wife Eudoxia uh, ran a house. She pretty much ran the empire. She ran his house with an inner circle of ladies. Now, eventually they turned on John Chrysostom because of his stance on how the wealthy should live. Some believed that when John Chrysostom gave a sermon on Naboth's vineyard, which comes from 1 Kings 21, this was about how, um, trying to think of the king that was in charge. It was, a very, it was an evil king in Israel. Heck, I might as well, where is my Kindle? I'm hoping while I'm stalling, my mind will be thinking about it, because truth be told, I was watching the Texas-Alabama football game earlier, and 
let's just go to First Kings twenty-one. I think this is an important thing. When you, when you preach, you have to. Oh yeah, King Ahab was in charge, and his wife uh, Jezebel was doing some very evil things. When John Chrysostom preached on 1 Kings 21, many people thought that he was comparing the emperor's wife and her inner circle of friends to Jezebel. And the queen wanted him banished. The people protested and protected him. Um, essentially, what happened was John Chrysostom eventually snuck out and went with the authorities, and he left. Now, the emperor did recall him in November 403. Problem is, Eudoxia, the emperor's wife, had a statue of herself erected near the church. And, of course, what does John Chrysostom do? He preaches against idolatry. And, of course, he ended up being exiled a second time. Uh, this is an important quote from the book. Many of John Chrysostom's supporters were subjected to brutal government persecution, including Olympias, who was punished with a crippling fine when she steadfastly refused to acknowledge the new bishop. Uh, to page 242. John of the Golden Mouth, certainly Chrysostom, was the most gifted preacher and Bible commentator of the Eastern Church in the Patristic Age. So, clearly one of the all-time greats in church history. And I just love the fact that he did expository preaching. He went chap verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and to me that should be the standard. Um, the next great person we're going to talk about is Jerome. He's referred to as the scholar. He was born in 347 and he lived until 420. He studied logic, philosophy, and rhetoric in Rome. He was baptized in 370. And in 372, he set off on a journey through the Middle East. He received ordination as a presbyter in Antioch in 379. He traveled to Constantinople and studied theology for two years with renowned Cappadocian father Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, another great uh, man in our church history. Uh, then in 382, Jerome visited Rome, where Pope Damascus, uh, from 366 to 384, asked him to prepare a new Latin translation of the Bible. He finished it in 405. It is what we know as the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate comes from the Latin word for common. So the whole idea was to put the Bible in a language, in a in a text that people could understand. A lot of the people in the western half of the empire could speak Latin, could read Latin. Um, so it wasn't really an effort to um, mislead people, or I, I think, in fact, it was an effort to try to get it to where more people could, in fact, um, read the scriptures. The problem is, is that over time um, with the fall of Rome, you know, French um, 
became more it's like each area started to to really hone in on their own language you know obviously french and france german and then uh, english in the area we now know as england so over time and this took like a thousand years <laughs> Latin wasn't used as much outside of the church. So, so I don't... It's so weird because by the time that Luther translates the Bible into German, you know, the church is so adamant about it must be preached in, in Latin and the, the, the Mass must be done in Latin and but I don't think Jerome translated it to Latin for for that to keep the Bible out of the hands of people. Uh, Promise he found some other books that really don't belong. Um, here's an important thing that Needham said about it: the Church called these extra books the Apocrypha, which is Greek for hidden things. This refers to the fact that the apocryphal books were not read out loud in public worship. The Council of Trent did say the Apocrypha was divinely inspired, but that was in 1546. Think about that. The Eastern Orthodox Church has never accepted the Apocrypha. The Greek Orthodox Church does accept it, but the Russian Orthodox Church says it's useful for instruction, but it is not Scripture. So... 386 on, Jerome lived in a monastery in Jerusalem. He spent his time writing and teaching the monks. He opened a school to teach the children of the neighborhood. He translated many important theological writings from Greek into Latin. problem is, in 416, a Pelagian mob attacked and burnt down his monastery in Bethlehem, forcing the aged Jerome to flee and remain in hiding for two years. He wrote a lot about celibacy and monasticism. There was a nun named Paula who lived from 347 to 404 who descended from two of the most ancient and illustrious Roman families. Um, apparently they worked together. Uh, Jerome died sick and almost blind in 490 or 420 in Bethlehem. Which is sad because he, he contributed a lot to the early church. And finally, we get to St. Augustine of Hippo, who was born in 354 and who passed away in 430. Page 245 of Needham's book. Quote, Many Western Christians regard Augustine as the greatest theologian to arise in the church since the Apostle Paul. Not surprisingly, his mother Monica had a big impact on Augustine. Uh, according to the book, he had a good education and could have been a great had a great career. <sighs> I'm sorry, I don't know what the heck's going on with me. Uh, he could have had a great career as a lawyer or a civil servant, but a, his father's death in 370 forced him to become a teacher. In 373, Augustine moved to Carthage and became a professor of rhetoric. Uh, while in Carthage, he was converted to a love of philosophy through the reading of Cicero. Augustine turned to the Bible, but to his dismay, found all kinds of problems and difficulties in the Old Testament. He thought it was a cruel, violent, and revolting book. 
Uh, he remained with the Manichees for nine years. But meanwhile, his mother, Monica, prayed unceasingly with tears for his conversion. But then in 384, he was appointed a professor of rhetoric in Milan. Two things that happened. He discovered the philosophy of Neoplatonism, Platonism, and he read a lot of the writings of Plotinus and his disciple Puffery. I don't even know how to pronounce that gentleman's name. P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y. Alongside Ambrose's conversion to Neoplatonism, page 246, he fell under the influence of Bishop Ambrose of Milan. He went to listen to Ambrose's preaching and the eloquence of his sermons. Um, and this is when the story of, you know, Augustine was just frustrated with life and, and he heard these kids playing in the and they were saying tole lege, tole lege. Uh, take and read is what it means. He went and grabbed a copy of the New Testament and it opened up to Romans 13 verses 13 through 14. I think this is worth looking at. Because this is what this led to Augustine's conversion. God used these two verses to convict the heart of St. Augustine, and that's why let us walk properly as in the day is in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's that's powerful. And the fact that God used that to of course those the nine years of his mother's praying for him had a lot to do with it as well. Um in 391, while he was visiting the Catholic Church at Hippo, west of Carthage, the over, overwhelmingly power, popular demand of the congregation forced a reluctant Augustine to accept ordination as a presbyter. Um, this is also on page 248 from Needham's book. Augustine's 34 years as Bishop of Hippo make him shine out as one of the brightest stars in the patristic galaxy. A preacher, a practical church administrator, a theologian, a mystic, a man of learning, a leader of the monastic movement, a writer of many books, and as a pastoral counselor. So it wasn't just the fact that he was smart. He was pastoral. He led that church for a very long time. Um, somebody I can think of who recently was like that was Charles Stanley in his church. Uh, anytime I watch In Touch on tel television, uh, I was dealing with somebody who was a uh, good speaker, able to explain the scriptures, but every time I listened to him, I always felt like 
that he cared about me as a human being. So. Uh, oh, yeah, this is really... Page 248. The emblem tradition has assigned to Augustine sums up his personality. A heart of fire pierced by two arrows in the shape of a cross. Profoundly gloomy and pessimistic about human nature and earthly life, Augustine burned with otherworldly love for Christ and the heavenly country his cross has purchased for his people. Now, Augustine had to deal with two separate controversies. <coughs> Donatism and Pelagianism. Now, Donatism... Um, Let's see. Felt the church in Northwest Africa was the true church. Um, page 250. In this way, Augustine developed the Western theology of the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. There was something Christ did as long as they were correctly carried out in accordance with Christ's command. You see, he taught. that if a baptism occurred outside the Catholic Church, it was valid as long as they later joined the Catholic Church. Now, when I say Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean universal. Going all the way back to the first century. True Christians were still sinners, and Augustine was much less confident about than the Donatists were about telling the difference between genuine and counterfeit Christians um, I wish I had gone more in depth in my notes about Donatism. Uh, it says Augustine remained totally opposed to the use of violence or the death penalty against non-Catholics. Fines and banishment were the only penalties Augustine had in mind. So, I really didn't go in depth on what Donatism is. In my notes, I can look it up for you as well. Pelagianism I'm, I'm much more familiar with because he denied the idea of original sin. Um, we don't really have a whole lot of Pelagians today. Most people that don't agree with the five points of Calvinism are, I would call them semi-Pelagians. So, Don. According to this article, uh, Donatism was a heretical sect of early Christianity founded by Donatus. Magnus, which believed that sanctity was a requisite for church membership and administration of church sacraments. Donatists lived primarily in Roman Africa and reached the largest numbers in the 4th and 5th century. So. Oh, that's right, because they, they had this idea that they, they could determine what... Um,
what a real Christian was and what a real Christian was not. And Augustine was like, no, we cannot judge the heart. Only, only God can do that. But I do know much more about Pelagianism. Pelagius was a British monk of cultured mind and blameless character who came to Rome about 383. He gathered a group of disciples in Rome and taught them and guided them into his own conception of what a pure spiritual life was. Others caught his vision and then the Pelagian movement group. His views about human nature sparked off a storm of controversy which ended in his condemnation for heresy. Page 252. Pelagius held that all human beings were born into the world as sinless as Adam was before he fell. The apostasy of Adam was, had not corrupted humanity's nature, but had merely set a fatally bad example. So, um, page 253. Against Pelagius and Celestius, Augustine argued that the entire human race was mysteriously present in Adam, the head of the humankind. When he sinned and fell, human nature itself sinned and fell in him. Augustine said the corruption of sin has robbed us of our freedom. Quote, and this is important, this is huge. Quote, we are still free to do what we want to do, but until God saves us, all we ever want to do is sin. So we are not free to do what we ought to do. Augustine held that lost sinners have a free will. Quote, Our wills are free in the sense that even when we sin, we always sin willingly with our choice and consent. Nothing forces us to sin against our wills. In other words, con conversion is not a human achievement. So... Here's a, here's a really good quote from the book. God had granted them a temporary salvation, but had not elected them to eternal salvation. Election bestowed on a believer the extra gift of perseverance. So, so the staying out believer to the end of one's life. So, And Augustine also criticized the sinless perfection teaching of Pelagius and Celestius. Um, the interesting thing is that Pelagius had... Uh, people within the church that agreed with it. Uh, Clanium, E-C-L-A-N-U-M, lived from 380 to 455. He was an Italian bishop and the most clear-minded thinker and lively writer that Pelagianism has produced. Now, in the south of France, there was a group referred to as semi-Pelagians. Uh, their leader was the great John Cassian, one of the founding fathers of Western monasticism. Uh, page 255. The semi-Pelagians agreed with Augustine that the whole human race had fallen in Adam, but they insisted that although a sinner could not save himself, he could at least cry out to God for saving grace, such as a sick person might not be able to heal himself, but at least he could take himself to the doctor. Um... At that time, Pelagians were considered heretics, but semi-Pelagians were considered erring brothers. Um, the Council of Orange was in 529. 
The Council's doctrinal statement received official approval in 531 from Pope Boniface II. Um, and it basically said that Pelagianism was heresy. And also struck down semi-Pelagianism. This is an important quote here, because a lot of the reformers looked back at Augustine as um, a very important man. But the truth is, the Protestant Reformation has often been called the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Um, three of his major works were the Confessions, this is the story of his early life and spiritual pilgrimage to faith in Christ, on the Trinity, this contains Augustine's attempt to explore the mystery of the Trinity. And the third one was the City of God. Augustine wrote this after the Visigoths captured Rome in 410. Pagans blamed the disaster on the fact that Rome had abandoned its traditional gods. Responding to this charge, Augustine developed a Christian view of world history. So, and that is that. Um... Augustine was not a Reformed Baptist. We have to allow Augustine to be who he is. Um, and the interesting thing is that, that, once again, God uses unbelievers, some would say even heretics, to help shape the course of history. Augustine had to respond to Pelagius. He had to respond to the Donatists. Just like in the second century, the church had to respond to the Gnostics. The third century, they had to respond to... Oh my gosh. Um, the Ma... The, yeah, the Ma... The Monatists... Now, those were the ones that, that were like the precursors to today's uh, charismatics. Hold on. I'm trying to make a point here. <laughs> My mind just... Um, give me a second. He was a famous Gnostic, and I can't for some reason think of his name. There were a lot of them. Ah, the Marcionites. Marcion is the one that said that only the Gospel of Luke was scripture and only you could only trust 10 of Paul's letters. Well, problem is the church was inspired to, and it says it either the end of Colossians or First Thessalonians, it encourages them to, to get letters from somewhere else and to, and to share their letter with them. And so they were doing a lot of letter swipe, swapping in the second century. Most of what's known as the New Testament was put together by then. But because of 
I'm not, literally just looked at it. I don't know why I'm so tired. I, I, I slept a lot today, actually. I slept, I try to sleep in on Saturday so I get some good sleep. Um, Marcion, the church had to, um, the church had to establish, all right, what is scripture, what's not? And that's when they said, oh, yeah, um, if it was written by an apostle or a friend of an apostle, we can trust it. Of course, the bottom line is the word of God is the word of God because of the subject that it talks about, and that's Jesus Christ. So, and scripture interprets scripture. If you get some weird or unusual book that does not line up with the teachings of the other, of the 27 books in the New Testament, yeah. It's, that's not scripture. Um, that's why the Gospel of Thomas is a gospel that is Gnostic. It talks about how Jesus, just haphazardly as a kid, uh, did all kinds of weird things. And it, it goes totally against what Jesus was like when he did his three years earthly ministry. So... I say all that to say that, you know, there's um, there's patterns. There's there's we can trust the scripture because the teachings of Jesus and the things that Paul taught match what he says. And the early church fathers worked hard to fight against um, heretics or false teachers. Who tried to deviate from the scripture, whether it's the Gnostics, the Marcionites, later uh, Pelagian teaching tried to discredit the idea of original sin. They all went back to the Bible and said, "No, this is the standard." So, but unfortunately, over time, we added uh, some traditions and. Uh, Augustine, as good of a, a theologian as he was, he was still Catholic. And he helped shape what later became the Roman Catholic Church. So anyway, I've been, I'm over 30 minutes. I'm, I'm, I need to go read. Um, but I want to thank the faithful few that are listening. Um, hopefully, God willing, um, more and more people who are subscribed to the YouTube channel will listen to the podcast. But until then, uh, until next week, uh, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. Bye.